Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. And now for today's environmental news brief. From WFHB. This is your environmental news brief for Thursday, December 16th. I'm Nathaniel Winesapple. One of the deadliest tornadoes in recent memory crossed four states last week in what is potentially believed to be the longest single tornado in history. At least 90 people were killed by the storms, with around 80 deaths occurring in Kentucky, but with death tolls still rising and likely to increase even more. Climate change is likely to have played a large factor in its severity. The tornado outbreak killed people who are working overnight shifts in both a candle factory in Kentucky and an Amazon warehouse in Illinois. President Biden has already signed on to provide federal aid and assistance to the states affected. If you potentially want to help the survivors of the tornado, feel free to donate to the Western Kentucky Tornado Relief Fund or the American Red Cross. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb has announced his choice, Brian Rockensuse, for the position as a new commissioner of the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. Rock and Seuss, a veteran of the department specializing in government affairs, as well as budget and finance, will take over for Bruno Piggott, who is leaving for the federal EPA. Mr. Rock and Seuss states that he hopes to find new creative solutions to the environmental challenges that the state faces. As part of the bipartisan infrastructure law, the state of Indiana will receive $127 million in federal funds to support water infrastructure projects. A recent Indiana Legislative Task Force focused on the issue found that the combined cost of all the necessary changes and repairs to the state's water infrastructure would be over $15 billion. Despite this discrepancy between the amount received and the amount needed, the money will be put to good use to provide clean drinking water and safer wastewater treatments. The funds potentially could go toward removing lead pipes in certain areas of the state and to help modernize rural water infrastructure. The exact projects that will be funded with the money have yet to be determined by the Holcomb administration. And that's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Winesapple. In today's feature report, IER reporter Enrique Sanz will talk about what the Indiana Department of Environmental Management faced during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. That's coming up later in the program, and now for your headline stories. 
environmental advocates have for decades touted solar power not only as beneficial but necessary to wean U.S. customers from what they say is a harmful dependence on fossil fuels. That message has made slow headway, however. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, the share of American energy consumption from fossil fuels has fallen from a peak of 94% in 1966 to 80% in 2019, the last year for which data is available. Solar energy currently makes up only 2.3% of the country's total energy consumption. Governor Eric Holcomb, who often touts his administration's all-of-the-above approach to energy production in the state, has advocated solar energy production as a key component of that strategy. As suburbs expand and housing developments continue to eat up previously undisturbed tracts of rural land, the issue of available space is becoming a greater consideration among solar companies and researchers. It's led to a new field of study, agrivoltaics, combining agriculture and photovoltaics, a branch of technology focused on converting light into energy. The team of engineers and agronomists at Purdue University has been experimenting with the possibilities of aglectic farming, mounting solar panels 15 to 20 feet above the ground at the university's Agronomy Center for Research and Education facility in West Lafayette. Among the project's goals is to establish and refine efficient methods of collecting infrared radiation for energy production while letting visible light pass through to crops like corn and soybeans. The Indy Star reports the abrupt decline in global carbon emissions during the shutdowns for COVID, which was very telling for scientists. It showed the strong tie between human activity and climate impact. As the world shut down, emissions dropped drastically in a short period of time, something that regulations would take years to achieve. But that abrupt decline of CO2 emissions will be all but erased by the end of this year, according to a recently released report. The report predicted that carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels will rise about 5% in 2021 as compared to last year, a faster rebound than many scientists expected. Many researchers believe that recovery is the result of businesses reopening as well as countries, including the U.S., China, and India, getting back to burning more natural gas and coal. That emissions number is likely to only increase as travel and driving continue to step up. Emissions will continue to rise next year, the research suggests, if governments don't try to put in place initiatives to take advantage of the decrease and curb emissions. Gabe Filippelli, the executive director of the Center for Urban Health at IUPUI, said many new habits could mean that more cars are idling these days. For example, many fast food restaurants have closed their dining rooms or are limiting the hours due to labor shortages and new virus variants. That means the vast majority of customers are left to go through the drive throughs We've all been there lately, lined up behind at least five cars. WFYI reports that Indiana's winters are warming more than in many other states. According to the Independent Researching and Reporting Collaboration Climate Central, the state's average winter temperatures have risen by more than 5 degrees since 1970. Indiana joins several other Great Lakes states and most of the Northeast in having the most winter warming in the country. Warmer winters can shorten the chilling 
time apple and peach trees need to produce fruit for the next season. Erin Sterling and her family own Anderson Orchard in Mooresville. She said, while they haven't noticed that, there's another reason they're losing apples. Quote, we've had those cold snaps right after bloom, or when we're in bloom, and that kills the apple flowers, apple blossoms, apple buds. And that's happened three years in a row, end quote, Sterling said. Warmer winters can cause fruit trees to bloom early, so they're more vulnerable to spring frosts. Jeff Dukes is director of the Purdue Climate Change Research Center. He said by late this century, we're probably going to get half as much snow as the state has had in the past. That's bad news for the state's ski resorts. If that precipitation instead comes down as rain, Duke said, that could potentially lead to more flooding in the winter when plants take up less water than other times of the year. The nuclear power company Next Era Energy has proposed extending the operating license of the Point Beach, Wisconsin nuclear reactors for another 20 years for a total of 80 years. The two reactors in Two Rivers, Manitowoc County, on the shore of Lake Michigan, the drinking water source for tens of millions of people downstream, are both 50 years old, a dangerous age for nuclear reactors. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission issued a draft environmental impact statement on the proposal and on December 8th held public comment meetings on it. Representatives of Physicians for Social Responsibility Wisconsin, Beyond Nuclear, Don't Waste Michigan, and other groups submitted verbal comments challenging the Commission's complicity in next era's bid for the license extension. Written comments are due by January 3rd. Opponents of the license extension contend that the reactors should be permanently shut down and that the extension represents many more years of risk to Lake Michigan. They cite environmental, structural, and health concerns about keeping the reactor operational. Those concerns include Lake Michigan water intake and thermal discharge, the age and structural integrity of the reactors, the environment and public health risk with accidents, the problems with disposal of nuclear waste, and safer, more economical renewable energy alternatives. Amy Schultz, a registered nurse and president of Physicians for Social Responsibility Wisconsin stated, quote, as a health provider, I was shocked that Next Era was attempting to extend their operating license from 60 to 80 years. These reactors are plagued with a long history of accidents and embrittlement, which make the risk of a catastrophic accident untenable for the safety of Wisconsin residents and the environment. One simply needs to look at the financial, environmental, and health costs paid by the people of Japan and Ukraine after the accidents at Fukushima and Chernobyl to recognize the folly of this relicensing proposal, end quote. The U.S. Department of Defense is the world's largest institutional user of fossil fuels and thus the world's biggest institutional producer of greenhouse gas emissions. According to Brown University's Cost of War project, between 2001 and 17, the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan emitted 1.2 billion tons of greenhouse gases. As Eric Edstrom, a former Army officer and Afghanistan war veteran, said on Democracy Now!, quote, If the military were to disclose its full carbon footprint and do so on a regular basis, that number would be deeply embarrassing and create a tremendous amount of political pressure on the U.S. military to reduce those emissions going forward. 
We cannot make smart choices intellectually and strategically until those numbers come out, end quote. Veterans for Peace, with 140 chapters in and outside the country, is focusing on this issue. The organization has been working to raise public awareness in the U.S. about the relationship between militarism and the climate crisis. Vets for Peace passed a resolution on the climate crisis, crisis in 2019 and created the Climate Crisis and Militarism National Project. The project's legislative team worked on a congressional resolution asking the military to report and reduce its emissions. Representative Barbara Lee spearheaded the effort in the U.S. House of Representatives by introducing a resolution requiring monitoring and reducing the military's carbon footprint, and 26 co-sponsors quickly signed on. According to her staff, Senator Elizabeth Warren is thinking about introducing a Senate version of the Lee Resolution. At COP26, no one mentioned military emissions and their huge contribution to the climate problem. A new report from the National Academy of Sciences says the U.S. must develop a comprehensive national plan to cut plastic waste in the oceans. Reducing plastic production, the report indicates, is a critical step in that plan. U.S. residents constitute only 4.3 percent of the Earth's population, but the nation generated more plastic waste in 2016 than any other country and surpassed that of all European nations combined. That year, the U.S. churned out a total of 42 million metric tons of such trash. The whole planet generates about 242 million metric tons of plastic waste each year. Of that amount, about 8 million metric tons of it lands in the ocean. The amount of plastic garbage that enters the oceans worldwide is equal to dumping a garbage truck of plastic into the oceans every minute. In the five decades between 1966 and 2015, global plastic production increased almost 20-fold, from 20 million metric tons to 381 million metric tons. Margaret Spring, chair of the committee that prepared the report and chief cons conservation and science officer at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, observed, quote, Plastic waste generated by the U.S. has so many consequences, impacting inland and coastal communities, polluting our rivers, lakes, beaches, bays, and waterways, placing social and economic burdens on vulnerable populations, endangering marine habitats and wildlife, and contaminating water upon which humans depend for food and livelihoods, end quote. As scientists planned an expedition in Mexico this fall to count one of the world's most endangered animals, a shy porpoise called a vaquita, they dreaded the possibility that there would be none left to find. The last survey in 2019 estimated that only about 10 remained. At the same time, fishermen in the area were preparing to set out with illegal nets that scientists say are driving the porpoises to extinction. Walls of mesh that hang upright below the surface up to 20 feet deep and stretching the length of several football fields. Called gillnets, they trap shrimp and fish. They also entangle vaquitas, drowning the mammals. Researchers say the nets are the only known cause of the species' catastrophic decline, but getting rid of them has turned out to be a challenge. Amid a global biodiversity crisis with an estimated million species threatened with extinction, the story of the vaquita shows how even obvious solutions, in this case putting a stop to illegal fishing, 
require political will, enforcement, and deep engagement with local communities to meet the needs of both people and animals. Quote, the government still hasn't given us a solution or an effective way to support our families without going out to fish illegally, end quote, said Ramon Franco Diaz, president of the Federation of Fishing Cooperatives in San Felipe, a town alongside the Vaquitas habitat. The children need food and clothes. The danger to Vaquitas was clear to all over 20 years ago. Solutions were offered but never implemented. 30 white rhinos have just made an incredible journey. The vulnerable mammals traveled more than 2,000 miles from South Africa to Rwanda in the largest single rhino translocation in the history of African parks. Introduction to safe, intact wild landscapes are vital for the future of vulnerable species like white rhinos, which are under considerable human-induced pressures. White rhinos are considered a near-threatened species by the Red List. There are currently 10,080 mature individuals in the wild, and their population is decreasing primarily due to poaching for the illegal trade in rhino horns. Now that we are in a mass extinction event, it may be necessary to protect many African species with electric fences and guards 24-7. The New York Times reports on a new version of, quote, the canary in the coal mine, unquote. Albatrosses usually mate for life, making them among the most monogamous creatures on the planet. But climate change may be driving more of the birds to divorce, a study published last week by the New Zealand's Royal Society says. The study of 15,500 breeding pairs of black-browed albatrosses on New Island in the Falklands used data spanning 15 years. The researchers, led by Francisco Ventura of the University of Lisbon, found that the divorce rate among the birds, which averaged 3.7% over that period, increased in years in which the ocean was warmest. In 2017, it rose to 7.7%. Albatross divorce is typically very rare. The most common trigger for permanent separation is an inability to successfully fledge a chick the report noted. In the years that the sea was unusually warm, the albatrosses were more likely both to struggle with fertility and to divorce. The technical term used by the researchers, foreshadowing a worrisome trend for seaboard populations in general as temperatures rise globally. Increasing sea surface temperature led to an increase in divorce, Ventura, a conservation biologist said in an interview. Higher water temperatures have required the birds to fly further from nesting sites to find food, adding to the stress of reproduction. Greenpeace reported that Australia, Saudi Arabia, and Japan were among countries that have tried to make changes to an upcoming UN climate report outlining ways to curb global warming. The documents seen by Greenpeace's Unearthed team consist of comments made by governments and other interested bodies on the draft report of an internationally composed working group of the International Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. The report is due to be released next year. Although most of the comments submitted to the IPCC by national governments were intended to improve the report, several major coal, oil, beef, and animal feed producing nations pressed for changes to suit their economic interests, unearthed reported. 
The attempts at lobbying were brought to light just days before the COP26 climate negotiations opened in Glasgow, Scotland. The conference is seen by many as crucial in determining whether human-made global warming will cause irreparable damage to the planet. And now for our feature, IER reporter Enrique Sands will talk about what the Indiana Department of Environmental Management faced during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. The past two years have been <sighs> difficult for many, and even long-standing institutions like government agencies have not been immune. A government watchdog found that the crazy first months of the pandemic affected the way the Indiana Department of Environmental Management monitored air pollution. An EPA Office of Inspector General report found that overall air monitoring compliance nationwide had fallen by an average 2.1% in 2020. But the Indiana Department of Environmental Management's total compliance monitoring activities dropped by 28%. Nationally, compliance monitoring activities at major emitting facilities decreased in 33 of 53 states and territories, but only 10 states and territories had a 25% or more decline during the pandemic. In its report, the EPA Inspector General concluded that lower levels of compliance monitoring during the pandemic or in future emergencies could result in a diminished deterrent effect against non-compliance and less assurance that facilities are complying with statutory and regulatory requirements intended to protect human health and the environment. In short, lower levels of monitoring during events like the pandemic could embolden polluters to do less to prevent that pollution. The EPA and IDEM adopted temporary enforcement discretion policies during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. According to the report, the EPA did not provide pandemic-specific guidance on how state and local agencies should have prioritized facilities for compliance monitoring. An executive order issued by Governor Eric Holcomb March 23, 2020, authorized state agencies to waive, suspend, or modify non-essential regulations. IDEM did not waive any regulatory requirements, but did allow the agency to give some leeway in compliance enforcement. IDEM allowed some minor facilities that claimed to have COVID-related difficulties meeting monitoring or reporting requirements to receive extensions. According to the EPA report, IDEM's air compliance monitoring at the state's largest emission sources, known as Title V major sources, was already below the historical average before the pandemic, reportedly due to budgetary and staffing issues at the agency. After the governor declared a public health emergency, IDEM's compliance activities at those major sources dipped even further between April and July before rebounding and exceeding the historical average in August. IDEM did not perform full compliance evaluations which cover all regulated emissions and pollutants at Title V facilities in April and May 2020. It began again in June and exceeded the historical average for the rest of the fiscal year. IDEM Commissioner Bruno Piggott in February reported to the Environmental Rules Board that the pandemic had initially slowed inspections due to social distancing regulations. At IDEM, some of our inspections had been reduced for some period of time during the big lockdown period or hunker down period as Governor Holcomb had in indicated, but for the most part, we're back up and doing all our inspections. In terms of the work we're doing, we measure progress in terms of our permits, our water quality or air quality in our inspections. In terms of permits, we've continued to issue permits in less time than is allocated under statute and in about 65% of the time 
allowed. So we're pretty uh, happy with that. The EPA said its Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance would coordinate with the EPA Region 5 office, which oversees Indiana and several other Midwestern states, to determine whether more technical assistance for IDEM is required. The agency also said it would explore the use of remote video to conduct off-site inspections during emergencies like the pandemic. IDEM said it was able to prioritize compliance monitoring activities and inspections to ensure the agency had sufficient oversight and inspections of permitted sources and was one of only a few states to continue to conduct on-site inspections throughout the year. In an email, the agency said, quote, IDEM continues to have a strong compliance monitoring program even with the impacts of the pandemic, but we recognize that there were some challenges during this period and will continue to work with EPA to evaluate and implement the recommendations by the Office of the Inspector General. Daily, and I'm Cynthia Roberts. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for our events calendar. Plan now to join the Audubon Society for the 122nd Christmas Bird Count, which takes place, uh, yes, a day ago, Tuesday, December 14th through, oh, sorry, January 5th, 2022. You need to sign up at the National Audubon website to receive information on how and where to participate. If you are a history buff, plan to attend History Friday at McCormick's Creek State Park on Friday, December the 17th from 2 to 2.30 p.m. to learn about the Dinkawalter Sanitarium. Meet by the fireplace in the inn to hear stories and history about what is now the park's hotel. This is an indoor event. You must wear a mask while indoors. A full cold moon hike is scheduled at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, December 18th from 7 to 7.30 p.m. Meet volunteer Anthony at the Grissom Memorial parking lot for a quarter-mile night hike on Accessible Trail 6. Learn the history and folklore of the full cold moon and make sure to dress for the weather. Take a crisp winter morning hike the day after Christmas on Sunday, December 26th from 9 to 10 a.m. at Spring Mill State Park. Join volunteer Anthony for a guided hike on Trail 5 around Spring Mill Lake. Enjoy the peacefulness of nature while hearing all about Spring Mill State Park. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center for a one-mile moderate hike. Not too far up the road, you have the opportunity to get some exercise while participating in the Fort Harrison 2021 Trail Challenge. Celebrate the 25th anniversary of Fort Harrison in the form of a trail challenge. This is a non-competitive activity to explore all the park's trails by the end of the year. Set your own pace. It starts now and ends on December 31st, 2021. Good luck.
And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's news brief was produced by WFHB reporter Nathaniel Weinsapfel. Today's feature was produced by Indiana environmental reporters Enrique Science. David Lyman assembled the script and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Myself, Juliana Daly, compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. <laughs>